If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest episode of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's episode, we will talk to Hall of Fame broadcaster, longtime sports center anchor, and now voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers, Charlie Steiner, about his lifelong love of rock and roll and that time when, oh, I don't know, he went to the original Woodstock and then peaced out early before Hendrix played. <laughs> Ouch. We also will break down new, new cultural and musical contributions by Lonzo Ball and so many other storylines happening around the world of sports that are not sports. I am your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. Joining me, starting also here in a very snowy, very frigid, windy city. Uh, good for Adam to go straight from Minnesota down to warm, sunny, temperate Chicago post-Super Bowl. That's right. He is our... Uh, uh, I guess respected, adored, feared, and tireless feared. PR professional Adam Millard. Adam, how was uh, how was hopping from one snowy uh, northern? I guess what, what do they call it? The bold north. How was uh, how was going from one area of the bold north to another? I prefer this area of the bold north, where I can control the heat and I get eight hours of sleep. <laughs> and am I wait? Am I am I forgetting? Like, did we tape last week with you? Am I am I like harkening back to something that was just like two weeks ago instead of one? Uh, we we did. Yeah, I, I listened to it on Saturday night. Our opening was twenty seven minutes long. <laughs> we ramble. I believe when we're that. It was we're traumatic, tired, ladies and gentlemen. We ramble when we're tired. Um. Also on the line in our Brooklyn Bureau, he is seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes. Hey, Gareth, um, I got a quick random question for you. I, I kind of like was bemused all summer long at your frequent frustration with the New York subways. And then the last two nights here in Chicago, my outdoor metro train just didn't show up. And I stood on a horribly crowded platform in like 10-degree weather. So... I, you know, shout out New York is what I really want to say. Like, I know you guys have been dealing with that all, all year long. And uh, what the fuck's up with the trains? This, I actually, I had this, this rant to somebody earlier today. I went into work and there's, they have what they call a tape robot. Like this robot that goes and like pulls old tapes and scans them so you can use them. But the robot broke. The robot broke breaks every week. And it... Like you get all these emails like, oh, sorry, the robot's down. So you can't get those tapes. And for the last two days, like my kids have wanted to watch On Demand this, uh, in the morning. Like they watch their shows while eating cereal. And On Demand hasn't worked. And I turned to someone and I was like, dude, the subways, this this tape robot that I get emails about every day, the, the cable company that I send a car payment to every month. Like I want to just make something and just not do it. Because that's apparently like viable now. Like, <laughs> ride my train. It's two fifty a ride. 
doesn't show up. You can't rely on it. It's it's not real. But it's just that's okay. Like that's a viable form of business now. Like, oh yeah, I'll give you a cable and internet. It never works. Yeah, it'll be three hundred fifty dollars a month. So just send it my way, man. I hate to sound like an old man, but like nothing fucking works and it all gets more expensive because you have to fix it. And it's Mm -hmm. just, I'm, I'm, I like want to opt out of consumer society. Basically like Joe Reed's involvement in this podcast. (laughs) Shout out Joe Reed. Well, we referenced him, uh, not with us this week, Joe Reed from our Seattle office. Joe, we hope all is well, but we look, we got a packed show. We got Charlie Steiner talking about being at Woodstock and the summer of love out on the West Coast, all in the same uh, kind of college years. Plenty to get to, so we're not going to delay it any further. Right now, we're going to take the open of the show and make it wide open. Anything around the world of sports that's not sports is fair game. Lonzo Ball. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of him. He's a rookie who plays uh, the sport of basketball. <laughs> And uh, happened to be drafted by his hometown team, the Lakers, this summer. Kind of been flying under the radar, but big week for him, man. (laughs) Throws out an appearance on uh, Lip Sync Battle. And this week, dropping a new mixtape. The full thing, we're taping this, full disclosure, we're taping this uh, a few days before the entire thing comes out. But a lot of it is already online, so you know we had to roll up our sleeves and uh, and do some uh, do some digging on the rap stylings of Lonzo Ball. So Adam, we've broken down a lot of athlete rap on the show. I'm not sure I've ever heard um, any of their songs begin with an eagle scream, like a Kah! like eagle scream, <laughs> the way that one of Lonzo's new cuts did. Uh, here, let's take a listen. Triple B's, I'm the man. I'm leveled up, I'm super sand. You said I can't, but I can't. I mean, Adam, that's next level stuff, man. Uh, What do you think about about Lonzo's potential uh, in hip-hop? Well, I know we have tried to vow to be less snarky on this show, but I'm going to break that promise. Careful, Adam. This is a tough start. Let's start by saying this. I separate Lonzo from LeVar, despite the antics of his father. Lonzo seems like a pretty... Decent young man, good player, respectable citizen. He's he's made all the right decisions until he decided to start rapping. So I think he has the most defined sound of the young athlete rappers who we've talked about, uh, including Le'Veon Bell, um, Damian Lillard, who I think they both ex- have experimented with their sound a little bit, Iman Shumpert. Uh, similarly, his albums have sounded a little different. I think that Lonzo, being 20 years old, uh, his production and beats are definitely with the times. And for better or worse, um, he knows what he wants to do. The problem is, unlike some of those other rappers, I don't think he has any natural talent on the mic. I, I feel like... <laughs> Don't hold back. I Adam. feel Don't like a lot of the, <laughs> I feel like a lot of these songs start with what is like, oh, okay, like if he can, if he can move with this beat, if he can be on beat for half the song, this may not be bad. And I don't think he ever manages to really do that. It kind of reminds me of uh, when you're a kid and 
and you record on your cassette tape and uh, kids, we can break down what a cassette tape is later in the show. But when you uh, were making songs as a kid and experimenting and weren't quite on beat, your vocal quality isn't really confident. That's kind of what Lonzo makes me think. Now, as a as a basketball player, uh, having a creative outlet, I would say absolutely keep rapping Lonzo, but I can't see anyone actually liking this. I liked it, Adam. <laughs> well, no, no, you. Well, Brad, you Brad, I think have- and this is I, this is what I want to discuss because I think a lot of times we're on opposite sides of the coin. I think you're excited because an athlete is doing rap music, and I think that is exciting. But would you really listen to this album if you didn't know it was Lonzo Ball? Adam, you're on one side of the coin. And I own the damn bank <laughs> when it comes to this type of stuff, man. I'm the Nicholas Biddle of uh, of, uh, of of athlete rappers like Lonzo Ball. I think, but guys, I believe I just pulled out the name of the the the, the guy who ran the 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 National Bank in the feud with Andrew Jackson. But Twitter, feel free to to fact check me on on the Biddle reference. Look, I think, and Gareth, I want to get your take here in a second too. But I, just to kind of throw out, I think. Lonzo, clearly, it's formulaic. I'll give it that. But he's young. Other than like him dropping the big baller brand stuff and Stan Lane, I actually I'm I'm into it when he's like distancing himself from his dad uh, and all that other all that other stuff. Because there's times when he's talking about like a plus with the penmanship. What other what other rappers ever talked about their handwriting? Like, I think that's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Come on. You gotta be kidding. Turn it up. You know who it is. She got a phone trying to sneak a pic. I hit a three, but I won't hit a lick. I see it's getting lit like I'm signed with Bic. Second pick, you ain't getting picked. We saw it coming. Y'all just witnessed it. A plus with the penmanship. Big B's, big businesses. <laughs> I don't care what he's talking about. He doesn't, He does. he's not competent at it. He's just not. It Gary- was like Kobe Bryant. We kept... We kept waiting for Kobe Bryant to develop as an artist. And again, Kobe did his thing. And any I applaud anyone who will put themselves out there creatively. But when you put yourself out there creatively, you also have to be ready for the criticism. And Lonzo's is not any good. We got to have this debate because I'm having a hard time <laughs> reading his song titles. Um, so Super <laughs> super Saiyan? Or is it Super Saiyan? Sa- I think it's Super Saiyan because it's, you know, in, in rap it's popular to misspell words. So uh, oh, I'm going to say Super Saiyan. I know, like, Adam. Super I, Saiyan. I called out Mo Ager to his face on that uh, on the show. Well, and by to his face, I mean over the phone where we couldn't see each other. Uh, I will <laughs> On Super Saiyan, Saiyan, Saigon, whatever, one of the things I really liked about it, getting to his content, was how much he really loved uh his girlfriend in the song. I mean, he's really talking about, um, and I think defying a lot of the tropes of young rappers, especially those like in and around sports or dealing with like increased fame at such a young age. Like he does seem to be just unafraid to say, yeah, I kind of love my, love my lady. And 
I'm just gonna start. Uh, I'm just gonna start rapping about her. Nobody's perfect, but I think she worth it. She love me on purpose. She know how to work it. Or freaking this shit like she came from the circus. We started with talking. We started with flirting. No, we don't pop Molly. Stay away from them Zans. Clapping them cheeks. She my number one fan. She calling two friends. They come join the clan. I stay with three B. Shouts out to the brand. Yes, I'm the man. Like skin with a tan. Only 19 in my neck. 20 bands. Rest off me 15. My ears. I think Adam, that is someone starting to think about. Uh, what they want to say in ways that I, I think show more promise and potential uh, for him as an artist, as opposed to all the other just line after line of cliched rhymes and big brawler drops sure. and that kind of stuff. Like I want to hear more from that Lonzo. So I thought it was a more promising personal debut in glimpses or in flashes than maybe I was expecting. Okay, I'll give you that. He can write a little bit. And penmanship, Adam. Penmanship, penmanship. <laughs> Huge in the ball house. He knows he has some he has some <laughs> subject he has some subject matter, but maybe he should just write some things for Damian Lillard because the boy can't rap. <laughs> Wow, I love that so, we're about to get rapper ghostwriter or like basketball so, rapping ghostwriters. I mean, unless he wants to auto tune everything forever, um, I don't know. I, I don't know, don't man. Know. Let's let's go easy on him. The guy's been handcuffed to a like a basketball rack in a gym for the last eighteen years by his dad. I'm sure he's just learning <laughs> what the outside world is all about. I will criticize him for this. His videos are dog shit. The, the the and I don't know how it's really it's really hard in social to, to to really figure out like is this the official video is it just sort of a fan made they they got they ripped off the song from SoundCloud and they threw up some stuff to it but at least three of the songs what looked to be official videos was just the same stock footage and and um, and NBA clips um, so Lonzo man look you're in LA there is no short of production people who will jump on doing a music video for an NBA player to get some exposure. Uh, I, I mean, I would advocate you paying them fair wages, but I'm pretty sure you can get some comp time from a few places if you really go after it. <laughs> Agreed. He's in the perfect market for it, and maybe he can develop his skill. I'm, I just don't know. No one is, and no one is, is, I think, putting him up against like the cream of the crop i mean this was not a dana barros level debut it was not like i was in the gym this morning and marshawn lynch the uh the the dame lillard song came on and i was i was like pleasantly surprised how much i still like that song that came on at the gym was that on your headphones or like at the gym they were playing athlete rap no they were not playing it on no, like no, kiss on 107 in chicago <laughs> it was <laughs> it was definitely or man cow or whatever the hell they play in that gym i i listen i have my headphones on Garrett. uh lots of alexi lalas lots of dame lillard in that in that queue if you throw that on shuffle uh my last my last bit on lonzo is this if it wasn't for all the craziness around his dad he would be my favorite young nba player guy is He's he's throwing out albums. He's showing up on TV. He seems to be sort of an interesting dude. He's just completely eclipsed by the shadow of the big baller experiment. And I think I would I would hope that if he does more of this stuff, he explores who he is and not who the myth is that kind of hangs around him at the moment. Yeah, and I I really did try to separate myself from 
LeVar Ball while, while listening to this. And maybe you're right. This is just a mixtape, which means it's a rough experiment. And we'll see what he can do with a, a good production crew and an offseason. Amen. Adam, okay, wide open. What else is on your mind? Guys, this happens every year, and I don't have a wife or kids. So I go into, and I'm half joking, but I go into, (laughs) I go go into a bit of a post-Super Bowl slump. And it really starts almost the moment that uh, you see the players celebrating on the podium and then you watch that last NFL Sports Center of the year. And then the following Sunday comes and it is depressing. I'd like to say that I have a lot to do. I've thought about reading a thousand page book on Gerald Ford's dog Liberty. I've thought about going to a record store and getting something really obscure and going home and growing some tarragon on my balcony. And that's you guys. I just, I'm a simple man. I watched as many football movies as I could this past weekend. And I'm really entering, luckily all-star weekend is coming up or by the time this tapes will have will have come. So that is a brief uh, reprieve, if you will. But I get really depressed, like the February and March after football, and I'm I'm just looking for help. I do think the the post Super Bowl, whether you like football or not, however you feel about it, it does leave. So we we've talked about it, like covering football, working in football. The rhythm of the season, the rhythm of the sport is so reliable. Um, And, you know, when it leaves your life, it does leave this hole in your your weeks and your Sundays that is unlike any other sport. So I'm with you. Uh, I also, I had a harder time recovering from the Super Bowl than I expected. I was like, I'm getting older. Fuck, this sucks. Yeah. You do this adrenaline dump, and then mm. there's that one, like, Friday, We for those of us who work Super Bowl, which I know not many of you can relate to, so apologize for the very specific reference, but this you is work week three along, of our, our We Worked Super Bowl series. <laughs> yeah. So the week leaves, and then um, we do an adrenaline dump. Sometimes that adrenaline dump has caused me to sleepwalk in hotels, and then... You still have the game, which is another moment of excitement, and then it's over. And I and I thought, here it comes again. Once I left Green Bay, that maybe that would end because I live in a great city like Chicago, where there's plenty to do. But it's also fucking five degrees out, so <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if there's a solution, but yeah, it's a rough time, guys. It's a rough time. How could you be complaining with multiple Lonzo Ball music projects coming dr- this week? You know, and Adam, <laughs> we're in the golden age of other shit to do that's not <laughs> watching football. <laughs> Come on, 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I realize that these things exist. I just forget about them. Football season ends and I haven't planned ahead, and I just don't know what to do. Just to put things into the proper context, though, Adam, yesterday um, my daughter stumbled upon the Chipmunks uh, sequel movie, and uh, I had to watch that with yeah. her for like an hour. And that's like the only hour of my day that I get that's not, you know, like <laughs> working or traveling or doing dishes or whatever. So, <laughs> you <Sure. know. laughs> you'll be okay, man. <laughs> okay. That helps. I appreciate that. This writer, Austin Kleon, I love him. He's a great follow on Twitter. He writes a lot about creativity and just, um, you know, how to fit creativity in your life around day jobs and things like that. He went to Miami of Ohio with a friend of pod, James Flynn. Um, but he threw out a quote one day. It wasn't his or was somebody else's, but I always think of him when I see it. It's like, I cannot recommend having children. That's the end of the quote. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like I've always like I can't record no that's it that's the end so you know it is uh I love my kids and blah 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 but man not having kids is a valid life choice man <laughs> it'll happen eventually and then I'll be too old to have the energy for them so great planning Adam great planning well, don't worry, Adam. When we get to distractions later in the episode, maybe you'll leave with a whole new batch of, uh, of fun things to fill the void. Uh, but right now, we're going to go to an interview that I got to do with Charlie Steiner. You know Charlie Steiner from his years on ESPN, from his work with the uh, Yankees and now the Dodgers. He's a, a uh, Hall of Fame uh, broadcaster. He's a... Uh, He's an esteemed alumni of um, my alma mater, Bradley University, and I actually got a chance uh, to go back and be part of the Charlie Steiner Symposium, with, which is a really cool event they do at Bradley every year where they gather people from all over uh, sports media to, to do various panels on, on topics. And so coming out of that, I just said, you know, Charlie, we got to get you on the show and talk about music. You know, he's a, he's a rock and roll fan. Uh, he was at the... Uh, Summer of Love in 67. He was at the original Woodstock. So I think you really enjoy the interview. I think it's a good time with Charlie. And I really appreciate the work he's done back at Bradley University. He is, he is really working hard to build a, um, a, a, a top-notch uh, sports media program there. So we talk a little about that too. So enjoy the conversation. Marvel at his stories about you know hitchhiking to and from Woodstock. And we will be back after that to distract you. Stick around. Honey's on the dash, yeah. Gotta spin it up, gotta live it up. Throw your city up, count it in the front, duffels in the trunk. I was a guest at the, at the uh, Charlie Steiner Symposium at Bradley University, our alma mater. Uh, it's a great event. You uh, you have built something really special there, along with the with the faculty and the administrators there. Can you tell me a little bit about what your experience, uh, you know, coming back and, and and building that has been like? What was remarkable was that when I arrived on the Bradley campus in Peoria, Illinois, in 1967, I had no idea, and I don't think anybody really did at that point how many extraordinary sportscasters would have come out of either Peoria or Bradley University. Yeah. It was crazy. Uh, whether it was Chick Hearn or Ralph Waller 
Bill King, uh, the list goes on and on and on. Denny Matthews of uh, the Kansas City Royals, who is merely in uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame, as is Bill King, as is uh, uh, Jack Brickhouse. Mm -hmm. Um, There were dozens of them who'd come out. And when I got there 50 years ago, and Jesus, that makes me sound old. Maybe I am. it was. Uh, I just wanted to go out and call some Bradley basketball games, and and there were two broadcasting classes: Radio TV 101 and Radio TV 201. <laughs> and and there was a little radio station where I parked myself. Now the years go by, the sports business grows, the media business grows, and suddenly the folks in Peoria come to this epiphany that. Wow, all these great sportscasters happen to come out of here. So they started adding classes. Then they called it a sports communication department. And then they actually had people who majored in all of this. And then they came to me a few years back and said, would you like to lend your name to this? I think they came to me primarily because I was more alive than most of the other fellows. (laughs) But okay, I'm in. And it's one of those things, and I tell the students when I go back, you hear all this nonsense about, you know, you reach a point in your life and career where you feel like you've got to give something back, and it sounds like a bunch of hooey. Well, it's true. And so for me, it really has become a joy and, and kind of a, uh, an epilogue to whatever uh, tome that I've written to this point in my life and career. And it's, it's great fun. And I, uh, I've got 130 kids who are majoring in sports communication. Now. Wow. And, and it's, uh, it's like, you know, again, I, I remembered a little college radio station uh, that was about the size of a phone booth, and now we've got a full school, and lo and behold, my name is on it. <laughs> I mean, how can I not be like, wow? I met you in 1999. You were back. Uh, you were back for the Bradley Illinois game back when that was a uh, when that was must see basketball. Uh, right in, in that era, I was interviewing you for the Bradley Scout, the paper, and I can confirm that back then there was still just about that little radio station and uh, the, the 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 Bradley paper down the hall. So where we've grown since then is is uh, is truly remarkable. It, 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 you know, I, I scratch my head in wonderment. You know, and in fact, you remind me of that Bradley, Illinois, and uh, there was a big luncheon, yeah. and uh, and my date that day was Jim Tomey, uh, yeah. who grew up in Peoria, and uh, Jim has been a friend, and, and and here he is now in in the Hall of Fame, um, and, and, and it really is kind of neat to go back to a school that. Um, <laughs> I think they would have been just as happy to throw me out in the sixties as, as they are now to have me back. But it's 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 fun, it's neat, and, and you know, this whole sports communication industry has just exploded exponentially. And to be a part of it is is, is just great. So let me. You mentioned um, being on campus back then, and 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 you know I remember researching stories about um, just that time on on campus in, in uh, you know in, across the nation, and just what um, you know just just the activism and the passion of the students. And I know that was a big part of your experience. And and as we're we're kind of transitioning into the music of the era, I guess I'm wondering how much how much was. Um, music really the 
uh, I guess, fueling the, the social activism that was happening. Because, And I say this in the wake of, you know, the Grammys were last night, and there's all this talk on Twitter this morning about, oh, it's too political. And I'm like, 50 years ago, rock music was political, and and you guys were in the thick of it. So I guess when you look back at that era, what role do you feel like music played in really forming not just uh, your tastes, but your entire ide- ideology? For the love of God. Music has always been political. <laughs> right. Has no one ever heard of Bob Dylan yeah. or the Beatles? Oh, please. That is just such a bunch of crap. Um, music was, was part and parcel of this group called the post-war baby boomers. I was lucky enough to have been born in 1949. Do the math. I'm 68. <laughs> I have no... I have no control over that. But when I graduated high school in the summer of 1967, I went off to San Francisco. That was the year of Haight-Ashbury, in the summer of love. And all of this music was exploding. I was a big music fan long before all of that. But here I am, this young 18-year-old hippie in... uh, Hate Ashbury, going to the Avalon Ballroom or the Fillmore East and seeing this uh, this new band called Big Brother and the Holding Company, confronted <laughs> by Janis Joplin. <laughs> and when you go and see somebody like a Janis Joplin who you had never heard of before, you're just blown away. And in that summer, from one night to the next, you, you, you'd see uh, Janis, you would see Jefferson Airplane, mm-hmm. the Hendrix. I mean, you see all of that, and they were all new. This wasn't classic rock. This was just the music of the time. And so when people say, you know, music and politics don't mix, the Grammys and politics don't mix, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> just don't. Right. I mean, to to be there at that moment at that place. What are the moments that stick out for you of that of that time from the music that you saw? Well, I, you know, I'll go back a, a few years earlier than that. The first time in late 1963, I heard the Beatles on a scratchy AM radio. Go, who are these guys? Yeah. And then after the assassination of of Kennedy in February of '64, they make their Ed Sullivan debut, and and that changed. Again, they weren't political by saying, I want to hold your hand, but they were so markedly different from anything we had ever seen or heard before. And then as the Beatles evolved, and, and, and Dylan and folk rock evolved, and Motown showed up on the scene, all of a sudden, music was, was at the epicenter of everything that we, the post-war baby boomers, were involved with and about. Uh, so it was, it was part and parcel. And then you throw, and again, I was just dumb lucky. I, I've had a gumpy in life. 67 was the year of uh, Haight-Ashbury. Two years later was Woodstock. I happened to be at Woodstock as well. And again, it's more Gumpian than anything else. And did we know at the time that that would be such a historic period of time? No. But stuff was happening really fast. You know, in 69, there was a man on the moon. In 69, God bless him, the New York Mets won a World Series. And people would say, (laughs) oh, the Mets will win a World Series when there's a man on the moon. Well, in 69, it happened. Um, And there was was music all around it. Um, 
But so again, for those of us who are now old enough to have appreciated what we went through and lived through, you know, it, it was a, a, a clear marker in our lives. And for many of us, how we saw the world then is how we try to approach the world today, although it's increasingly difficult. What memories do you have of Woodstock? Because to say I was at Woodstock is one of those things that still, it, like, it sends a little bit of a, a jolt up my spine the way you would say I was at Wilt's 100-point game or something. I mean, how would you describe it? Like, the maybe the, the what, what's the truth versus the fiction of somebody who was actually on the grounds during that concert? The weather was horrible. <laughs> it was cold and it was rainy. Uh, Woodstock was supposed to have begun at 5 o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. And about six of us uh, drove up from Long Island in, naturally, a Volkswagen uh, bus. Uh, I mean, it was, it was just stereotypical hippie stuff. Um, and we left at what should have been a two, two and a half hour drive. We left at 10 o'clock on Thursday night, figuring we'd, you know, get in kind of early and, and see how the thing played out. We left at, uh, 10 o'clock at night and got in about seven o'clock in the morning. As you know, the New York state Thruway was closed down and, yeah. and the two lane roads to, uh, Yasgur's farm were just nothing but gridlock. And so we got out of our little Volkswagen bus and and started meeting other folks and then then not it wasn't chaos it was slow motion chaos because nobody knew where to go there were no fences <laughs> we just kind of arrived uh, near the the stage area ending up uh, oh I don't know we were about twenty yards from uh, the stage at about seven o'clock in the morning and we slept and and and. You know, just started to communicate with one another, and it was uh, it was really kind of neat. And then we would have little transistor radios uh, listening on AM, WABC, talking about how New York State has been declared a disaster area because there are too many people in this small place. And we thought, this is cool. Um, <laughs> and, and then we just waited uh, until about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. The problem, of course, was that most of the bands couldn't get there because it was the, the roads were completely clogged. Um, and so they had the Maharishi uh, open the show, such as it was. Yeah. And he's dancing around in his orange stuff and the, the, the symbols on his fingers and people singing and dancing. Um, and then Richie Havens finally was like the first musician, and he went out and played a set which was supposed to be like 15 or 20 minutes. He went on for like an hour because he had to fill time. Um, and the night went on, and the weather got cold and nasty and muddy. Um, and, and truth be told, I was out of there late Saturday afternoon, early Saturday evening. It was just miserable. <laughs> and so I hitchhiked back to New York. Uh, but yes, I was there <laughs> for about, uh, oh, let's say I got there at 7 in the morning uh, on Friday morning and left about 7 o'clock on Saturday night. So what is that, about uh, 24 or 36 hours, something like that. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's a 24-hour period a lot of people would have killed to say they were at. 
again, I was I grew up in New York, and and, and Woodstock, the town, was always kind of a uh, a magnet for me. Uh, Dylan lived there, the band lived there, and so those were the kinds of groups that we wanted to see. Dylan did not play uh, Woodstock; uh, the band did. Um, but I I was not there at the end uh, with Hendrix and, and the National Anthem. So I missed a lot of good stuff, but I, was, the, I guess I vividly remember being profoundly disappointed that Woodstock would open with the Maharishi. I'm thinking, <laughs> let's rock. <laughs> How hard was the living there? Like going to the bathroom, finding food. Yeah, like what, what, was, what was your day? I mean, what was your day-to-day experience like trudging around on the grounds? Here was another issue that I had, and I haven't thought about this in years. So we, the group of us who'd been in the Volkswagen bus kind of dispersed. Um, and I, stupidly, uh, was wearing a pair of sandals. Sandals should not have been worn in that weather, in that, uh, on that land. And so they broke about 10 minutes after I got there. So now I'm barefoot in the mud and the rain. And, you know, you had a little bit of food. You packed a, a couple of sandwiches or whatever. Um, but it was not like a country fair where you just went from one place to the next. Hey, I'm going to get a hot dog here. I'm going to get a slice of pizza there. It was none of that. There was a lot of every man for himself. And I don't even remember if there were bottles of water then. Um, so, because they weren't bottling water, um, it was tough, but again, with the 50, 50 or 20, 20 hindsight and 50 something years later, um, it was nice, (laughs) but it wasn't, it was tough. How did your, how did your musical tastes evolve from there, you've you've, you've self described a few times now as 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 a hippie. It seems clear that you were into the mainstream rock of the time to the more psychedelic of the groups. Well, as a, as a kid, you know, I grew up listening to Top Forty radio, um, and again, that was evolving. This is pre Beatles, and, and 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 the disc jockeys who were on the radio who who were. More than just guys who played records, they were they became part of our lives, you know. And, and at that point, there was no FM to speak of, and so whoever the, the the big jocks were, whether it was New York, Chicago, or LA, they were they were ingrained in our young lives. And then the the music that they played, you know, from uh, a cappella and street corner stuff to you know rock and roll and then to the Beatles and the British invasion. What was really great about that whole period of time from the time I was, say, 13, 14 years old and I was riveted to the radio, and just parenthetically, the reason that I was uh, so attached to the radio was when I was seven years old and I grew up in New York and I was old enough to be a Brooklyn Dodger fan, and I heard this announcer named Vin Scully, a young one at that point, about 24 years old, I was, my ear was glued to the speaker, um, and so I loved the medium of radio. And when baseball wasn't being played, rock and roll was. So I, so to me as a, as a child, they were kind of interspersed with one another, Scully and, yeah. and the Beatles. And, you know, and, and both 
turned out to be, you know, the pillars of their respective uh, discipline. Um, so I was always, I was attuned to radio, I was attuned to rock and roll, I was attuned to music. And so then again, going back to uh, the summer of 67, arriving at Haight-Ashbury and hearing all this stuff when it's brand new, um, I was this wide-eyed kid who couldn't believe what he was seeing and hearing and being a part of. Again, I knew it was something I'd never heard or seen before, but in retrospect, I had no idea either at that time uh, how, how pivotal it was, not only for me, but for a generation. We look back at the time in a very nostalgic way. We, we, we talk about it as a very turbulent time, but also... Um, a landmark time culturally. Uh, as what are your reflections looking back, and 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 how do you balance the uh, the true appreciation for the the giants of of music at the time who who sort of rewrote rewrote the rule book? Uh, how do you balance that? You know, um, being in awe of them with you know with trying to avoid the overly nostalgic view that they were these larger than life sort of myths. I mean, at the end of the day, they were. They were people, and you were you were all part of it at that time. So, I mean, how do you how do you look back and and try to gauge the the appropriate um, response to that era? You're spot on. And again, when we're just kids, and you know, these rock and roll stars were maybe two or three years older than we were. Yeah, but they just seemed like giants. Um, and, and going back to something we were talking about earlier about music and politics. Um, there was a war going on. There was a civil rights movement going on. It was the very early stages of, of, of women's rights and equal rights. Um, and music was, was woven into the fabric. That was just part of the deal. So looking back now on the rock and roll stars, I'm, always, I'm, I'm astonished when rock and rollers who I grew up listening to, I, I see, sadly, in their obituaries, he was my age, or he's a little bit older. And it's like, wow. But, but the impact that they had in, in, in defining a generation, again, I, I don't want to get into a debate on, on what musically is, is going on in today's life that we have to live. But all I can tell you is in our day, um, we couldn't wait for the next Beatle album to come out. What was Dylan going to say next? Uh, how Marvin Gaye would, would, would gravitate toward, uh, being really socially responsive. Um, it, again, it, I guess with hindsight, it was, uh, it was a spectacular time. We knew, we knew good stuff was going on. Um, and for those who are so young and hearing me prattle on, oh, that's some old guy waxing nostalgic, uh, it was one of those you had to be there. <laughs> well, I mean, I still think that those bands have and those artists have aged incredibly well. I mean, the, the cream of the crop, I mean, I think will still be legendary in a long time. I mean, that said, we are drifting further and further away, and and perhaps, you know, you've got generations that have heard the Beatles in uh, anthology or greatest hits form, but they've never sat down and listened to Revolver all the way through. So, I mean, from that perspective, like, 
How do you how would you tell younger listeners um about the just the thrill of experiencing those albums that were that were you know artistic statements in their own way that that transcended even the songs on them? You know this is long before you could download a tune when when a new Beatles album came out uh it would go on sale at nine o'clock the next morning at some record store, and people would be waiting online to buy it. Um, and again, from I Want to Hold Your Hand through Sgt. Pepper, Revolver, uh, Rubber Soul, uh, mm-hmm. and so on. Again, I, I don't I don't want to sound like a, a, a dinosaur here, but each each album was a new statement. It was uh, new music was being unfurled uh, before our eyes and ears. How's that for a mixed metaphor? But it. <laughs> What, what it was new stuff it was creative stuff and stuff that had simply never happened before and so we were just awash on all these wonderful artists you know the who and a, a rock opera which seemed like an ultimate contradiction in terms of oxymoron but there it was so it, it was a wonderful time uh in general of just great musical experimentation what were we going to hear next? And it was a, it was it was a great time to be growing up. Also, at a time when it was very it was very difficult you know, socially to live through that period of time. Not unlike what we're going through uh, with Trump and how the, the country is essentially uh, split into one third and two thirds. It's it's not a pretty time now, and it certainly wasn't a pretty time back then. And and we had a, a war going on and a draft that had uh, divided the country at that time about 50-50. How did you, so, you know, I mean, clearly everyone kind of looks at the late 60s into the early mid-70s as a, as a pinnacle, as a, as, a, as a, you know, just a high point for music. How did you sort of, I guess, transition into, you know, because that turned into the late 70s, early 80s, uh, you know, big arena rock, like like you know, Journey or Boston or Rush or, and then like Yacht Rock and all these sort of subgenres, not to mention, of course, you know, there was clearly underground sounds happening with punk and, and, and New Wave. So where did you, how, how long did you stick with the popular sounds of the era as opposed to becoming maybe what I've done, like I was a child of the, of the eighties and nineties. And, and I think if you were to ask me right now, what are you listening to? You'd be hearing a lot of bands from that era. <laughs> I just kind of stuck with them. And, and, and that's exactly the same with me. Uh, for me, my musical wheelhouse sweet spot is about from 63 to 83, somewhere in there. Uh, and then, then you know, again, uh, music moved on. Uh, I moved on. I certainly wasn't getting any younger. And the stuff that I grew up listening to was still the most familiar and, and comforting for me. And it is to this day when uh, when I'm in the car or in the house. Uh, I... I I, I'm trying real hard to listen to new stuff, but very little has grabbed me. Do you have, I guess, do you have like one particular group or um, album that's most meaningful to you, that has the most personal resonance for whatever reason? Two bands, uh, The Beatles, Sgt. Pepper, mm-hmm. and uh, the band, um, the very first band album, Big Pink. Yeah. 
those are reflective of me, my time, and both were uh, right around 67, 68. I was 18 years old, and I was just slowly beginning to come become a young man after having, you know, grown up in a nice suburban setting, and now suddenly I'm on my own. I'm in San Francisco, and then I'm off uh, in college at, uh, at Bradley. Um, and so I, I look back, and again, the music was so new, um, stuff that we had never heard before, and there I was um, as a kid growing up, listening to this stuff for the first time, and it was every bit uh, jaw-dropping then now, or then, as it is now when I look back on it, and what, what those two albums in particular meant for me. And you, you mentioned radio a lot. I mean, clearly you've got a, a wonderful history in, in radio, um, Hall of Fame career, and we talked a little bit over email about just the DJs of that era and the, the, the influence they had on popular music and i wonder how do you these days you know we, we've seen how musical radio has been so commodified and corporatized do you, do you find yourself longing for the kind of person-to-person -person interaction between dj and audience that existed back then that's what radio to me is all about the communication between the man or woman behind the microphone or the man and woman who is listening out of the speaker. Um, you know, when I hear the title DJ now, it's somebody at a club who's playing records, <laughs> and, and that's right. Fun. right. Uh, but a DJ in those days, a disc jockey, was the guy behind the mic four hours a day or night, depending on what his shift was, playing songs that we had never heard before, or conversely, songs we would hear over and over and over again, because they played the hits. Um, and and so these fellas, and in those days it was fellas, with the notable exception of a, a female jock here or there, um, were part of our, our, our lives, whether it was Wolfman Jack, who was so popularized in American graffiti, mm -hmm. Larry Lujak in Chicago, Dan Ingram in New York, Robert W. Morgan in Los Angeles, Murray the K in New York. These guys, above and beyond playing the record, and that's what they were, they were records, um, also started to at least lead us into what is hip, what isn't, um, and they, they, were, they were a continuity, they were a funny, uh, rarely political, but every once in a while they would, they would have a little anarchistic streak that we all loved as kids. Um, they were really important. Now, for the most part, and I, and I feel badly about it, the role of the disc jockey uh, today is nowhere near what it was then. And the other thing was, these disc jockeys, uh, I, I was thinking about this the other day. Can you imagine a band now playing the, or singing the song Sweet Little Sixteen by Chuck Berry? One of the great songs of all time. Now, it, it, you'd be going after an underage girl. <laughs> I mean, so those... I, 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 I'm serious about that. It's bizarre, but true, and it was a different time and a different place. And, uh, and and that is, but that was those were the origins of rock and roll, and so were the disc jockeys who played those songs. So to close out, because you've given us a lot of time here, I, 
for our for our listeners, I mean, again, you you know that era. You were you were a part of uh, you know the the scene in San Francisco, being at Woodstock. Give us like your five kind of essential albums from that time period that that you would say, hey, look, if you're gonna put these in a time capsule, or if you want to know what it was all about, go you know go go grab these guys. Well, I, rather than the albums, I think I would go with the groups. I'd yeah. go with the Beatles, the Stones. Dylan, the band, and who's be number five? Oof. Give you the top four and about 50 tied for fifth. <laughs> and we had, we had a long debate on the show with um, the writer Chuck Klosterman about who was the great American band. Um, you know, especially because the, Europe <laughs> and, and Britain have so many of the of the iconic ones. Uh, my, my co-host, who's not with us tonight, because uh, he's already in Minnesota, has always argued the Grateful Dead. I'm not fully convinced on that. Chuck had actually said the Velvet Underground. Do you, do you have a take on that? Do you have, a, do you have an opinion on who the great American band is? But I, I'll give you two great American bands who played and sung quintessential American songs. I would go with the Beach Boys, and I'd go with the Eagles. Mm. Yeah, hard to argue. I, I think Beach Boys especially... Did I mean when Brian Wilson was on his game? I mean they did so many interesting things that influenced so many groups to come. Um, and, and just being the soundtrack of a generation from about '62 or '63 through Pet Sounds, uh, which was around '70, I guess '71, and then uh, and the Eagles were they were just I mean their music and people can argue about the commerciality and all of that. Their music was. Totally American, um, and everything about it sounded American. Whether it was Take It Easy, Hotel California, whatever it was, to me, those two are the quintessential American bands of that generation. Yeah. Well, uh, Charlie, thank you so much, and thank you for all the work you've done back at our, our alma mater. And uh, how much time before you have to report to uh, to, to to camp? see pitchers and catchers on valentine's day i'll be there about 10 days after that and away uh, we go yeah away we go indeed well sir thank you again for joining us and i i really appreciate the time this has been great fun thank you And we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media, they all, you know, uh, get into things like rap albums and uh, lip sync battle appearances. And then a huge contingent of sports fans tells them to pipe down and get back to watching game film and stop being a distraction. We love distractions on this show. And every week we celebrate them by telling you what's been distracting us. Adam, you want to you want to kick us off this week? Yeah, I just want to start with an apology. Uh, we made fun of Gareth last week for his musical recommendation, <laughs> and Brad, I know you listened to it and you didn't like it. Um, I listened to it with uh, kind of some cynicism in my head for the first couple minutes, and then it got really good, and I fell asleep to it. And I listened to it again the next day at work. So, Gareth, I apologize. You have never led me wrong with the music recommendation. So I'm going to be more open-minded 
when you make recommendations, no matter how Brooklyn-ish, hipster-ish, <laughs> and obscure they might seem. So thank you, and I apologize. Thank you. So that um, that recommendation was Lamont Young's A Well-Tuned Piano. I found out last week, past distraction was go to a record store and hang out and talk to people. Uh, so I went to my favorite record store, uh, another past distraction, Geo, who did Standing on the Corner, an album I recommended. Was so- we started talking about Lamont Young, and he hit me to the fact that downtown in Tribeca in New York, uh, Lamont Young's foundation set up a place called the Dream House, and it just plays drone music bathed in pink, and you're supposed to go and meditate. It is free. It is open from 2 p.m. to midnight. I have not been, but I will go and report back. So, well, thank you, Adam. Well, hold, hold the phone there. I yeah. am heading to New York on March 14th and 15th. So this I is so happening. W- will, will come with you. Oh, I love this. That is an awesome field trip. Brad, you want to join? I am going to pass. <laughs> Because <laughs> I had to illegally download that five-hour monstrosity to like put it into last week's edit, and I mean, just even even like importing the damn file took too long into my you know computer. It was it was a disaster. Like it was a funny experience to listen to it and be like and marvel at it, but I found it to be entirely unenjoyable. I liked it. Repetition, minimalism, all these things. So there you go. My distraction is uh, about the world of media right now, and specifically the scrutiny coming on the New York Times for a lot of its editorials. Um, I have really complicated feelings about all this because uh, being a former reporter, now being someone who works sort of in media and, and evaluates media trends, I both have like really strong sort of passionate takes about the way that newspapers should focus their editorial vision, but I also have like a cold, dispassionate, analytical eye for just what's going on in the industry and the business of it. So, I mean, look, just to put into context, I think the New York Times has gotten a ton of heat recently because they've brought on more conservative voices to their editorial page. Uh, tonight, the, the Times hired a, uh, um, a technology writer who almost instantly was, uh, you know, all of her old tweets sort of poured out with, with uh, you know, N-words and dropping, like, uh, gay slurs. And she tried to sort of defend it by saying, I cover these really radical communities online of trolls, and you've got to speak their language. And she was fired almost instantly, like, within hours of these tweets coming <laughs> out. And it was, it was very reminiscent of that situation with the woman on the airplane who made the AIDS joke on the way to Africa. Like this woman announced her hiring and then said, I'm going to the movies. And then (laughs) within the next two hours, all these things come out and it's like, so Gareth, I wanted to bring it up because I've been sort of following your frustrations with the times, um, in your tweets. And it's maybe more kind of attuned to it. And I think you being in New York too, it's certainly the paper of record for, for most there, not just in the, you know, on the national scene. What do you, what do you think about the way that they're trying to, I guess, change the tone of the editorial page and, and, and how are your fellow progressive uh, New Yorkers dealing with it? Well, well, nobody's dealing with it well because nobody's, nobody complains more than 
a progressive New Yorker. I mean, let, let's just <laughs> right. own that, okay? Um, <clears throat> that said, I can understand the argument, like the media trend argument, like America is in this conservative moment and we should reflect more of that, um, whatever. The The problem that I'm having, and it's just gotten worse and worse, look, the, the constant coverage of... Um, Trump voters in middle America is tiresome. And I think it's been accurately pointed out that there weren't that many people. There weren't the same sort of follow-up on Obama voters 12 months ago. I think it speaks to the fact that this was a blind spot from the media and that they're trying to kind of like publicly overcompensate. Um, That said, I think it was fair to point out when the New York times about two weeks ago turned over their entire op-ed page to Trump voters, somebody was like, dude, it's it's one day. Like, they do 365 op-ed pages a year. Like, for one day, they turned it over to Trump voters. Like, who cares? And so I'll hear that argument. What's really been crazy to me is Brett Stevens is the guy they hired from the Wall Street Journal, and he's kind of, he doesn't believe in climate change, and he's hyper-conservative. When he busted out on Saturday with his... I'm going to defend Woody Allen hot take. I, I'm just dumbfounded. Like, I, I, I'll never get it, man. Like, I'll never get in this moment, in this time, like, of our country's history, and all that we're trying to sort through about sexual abuse and sexual harassment and power dynamics, to be a guy who has a column on the New York Times op-ed page, arguably the most powerful real estate in media, and be like, you know what I got to write about today? I have to write a column defending the guy who married his stepdaughter. Like, that's it just calls <laughs> right. to me. And then Tuesday, we woke up, and the editor-in-chief, or the editor of that page was having like a public Twitter meltdown because some tweet she tweeted was misinterpreted and she just wouldn't let it go. It just kept going. It's like all morning you're reading this person, like digging a hole for themselves. Like, and I'm just like, God, you're the, you're the public face of the New York times op-ed page. And you're, you can't shut up about this, like this Hamilton tweet about minority or like immigrant populations. Like, Dude, what is happening over there? Then in the afternoon, they hire somebody who's immediately fired. It's like, it is just, it's taking <laughs> body blows on this thing. Well, and so let me ask you this from a media trend standpoint. If you're, I can understand like, oh yeah, we're always in the news. We, we make a lot of news. That's a good thing. But if you're in the news like five days in a row for this stuff, that's not the attention you want as the gray lady. No? Okay, I think there's a really big difference in the way we analyze what it means to be, like, air quotes, in the news. Because them hiring that person today and, like, within five seconds of, like, some very uh, very easy uh, Twitter Googling, you know, Twitter searching, uh, people find all this other evidence and they have to fire that person. That, that's an embarrassment for what is supposed to be the standard bearer of... American journalism, and that's a news story. But like Brett Stevens publishing a hot take on Woody Allen's due process is more of a question of 
taste than it is like news. It's just become news because we are a snake eating our own tail and everything that's trending becomes the headline of the story becomes the trending topic, becomes the outrage machine, becomes all the articles about the outrage machine, and then all the think pieces. There's a lot of people that I follow who are just, who every morning cannot, and I'm not lumping you in this, 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 Gareth. No, it's fine. You every can. I don't mo- care. No, no, I, I don't think you're this. I think you like make some comments about, hey, start over. This is ridiculous. But there are people who wake up and they are just furious. That like this is what's happening on the editorial pages of the New York Times. For a couple of years, I worked at sixty Minutes on some like sports pieces. It was it, like, and there's one. So when you work at Screening Minute sixty Minutes, the screening is the worst part. Like you do a live show when you go on air, like that's when you're under the gun and you better get it right. At sixty Minutes, you screen the piece for you know the executive producer and the senior producer and the fact checker, and they go through it. And like they tear up your script or they like it or whatever. So we did this piece and at the end, there was not a good screening, by the way. That was a terrible moment in my professional life. Fascinating <laughs> nonetheless. We were explaining what was going on and the executive producer just stopped. He goes, wait a minute. Is this a trend piece? Are you doing a trend piece? And I loved that moment because it said to me, you can argue that 60 Minutes is more important now or less important now or things like that. But the fact is it's been around for 50 years and it has a stack of credibility and ratings and awards that most people in media would, you know, cut their arm off for. Um, and it showed me, like, they have a list of words you're never exposed, supposed to use. And one of them's like, exclusive. They're like, that cheapens what we do. And I think that when he was saying, like, is this a trend piece? Like, that speaks to me. Like, if they're doing trend pieces, that cheapens what 60 Minutes is. That's why if you're going to write something about Woody Allen or porn or whatever, it, you've got to do... To me, I don't want the New York Times to be the hot take sheet. You know what I mean? Like, I have the whole internet for that. You know what I mean? Like, the entire internet is a hot take. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, but I also think, like, I'm sure there's been a lot of horrible takes in the New York Times <laughs> over the years. <laughs> and maybe- right, and there's probably been trend pieces on 60 Minutes. You know what I mean? But, like, yeah. I think it's something to aspire to. It'll be fascinating to follow. So, anyway, that is our show for this week. Let's end with some shout-outs. I'm going to give a shout-out to... Our amazing guest, Charlie Steiner. Um, uh, go Bradley Braves. Uh, I will not sing I will not sing the school song. It'll take too long, but just know that I can. Gareth, any shout outs? Yeah, I just kind of want to... Uh, this was going to be my distraction, but we ran long on that. I'll keep it short. I want to mark the passing. I've talked in, uh, in the past here about my love of the Grateful Dead. Uh, one of their songwriters, John Perry Barlow, died last week. A strange man. He, was, he grew up in Wyoming. He was a cowboy, a songwriter and poet for the Grateful Dead. He was Dick Cheney's campaign manager in the 70s. He wrote for the Electronic Frontier Foundation and kind of helped establish the internet and the rules that govern it. He helped establish Burning Man, like lived a full life. Um, When he was on This American Life a few years ago, Ira Glass said, explain your connection with the Grateful Dead. And he said, oh, I spent many, many years as their sort of junior varsity songwriter. 
There were two songwriters, and I was the lesser of the two. <laughs> um, but I share all that. Uh, he, he, when he turned 30, he published a list of 25 principles of adult behavior and things that he wanted to aspire to. And they're beautiful, and I've shared them on here. I think I mentioned them on here in the past, but I just want to call out. Number one is be patient no matter what. Number seven is tolerate ambiguity. Number four, expand your sense of the possible. Number 19 is become less suspicious of joy. Um, And the last five are forgive, foster dignity, live memorably, love yourself, and endure. So Principles of Adult Behavior by John Perry Barlow. May he rest in peace. Yeah, I would to add to that, I would also like to add this quote, uh, A plus with the penmanship. Lonzo Ball in uh, the song, <laughs> in the song saying something. I don't. I don't know. I can't pronounce it. Uh, Adam. Adam. Any super saying? Yeah, I want to give a shout out before we let it slip away. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Danica Patrick, who is retiring from NASCAR, and her last race actually will be the Indy 500 in May. She's obviously made some amazing comp- contributions to sport as a woman in a otherwise all-male competition. So shout out to Danica and good luck to you on what's next. And as usual, I want to give a shout out to some of my favorite people. My boy Uzi, Def Jeff, Lil Swanee, Meech, Ron Mack, and my other cousin Ron. And in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, and in the immortal words of a rapper extraordinaire, Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers, stay booty. Stay booty. How's their penmanship?